Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship, uh, ready to focus on the study of God's word, and uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be here this evening, to be able to study your word, to be refreshed by your word, encouraged, strengthened by your word, and by God the Holy Spirit who teaches us your word. And Father, we're thankful that Alan's doing well and that he'll he's uh, will recover quickly and be home tomorrow. Father, we continue to pray for others in the congregation who are facing uh, health challenges and whether it's involved surgery or cancer or some other illness, we pray that be an opportunity that they might um, glorify you and their illness and that as uh, they go through this medical testing that there will be an opportunity opportunity for them to grow and mature spiritually. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we will again recognize that all of history is under your control and that you have a plan and a purpose and that as we go through our study of your word that uh, this will be clear to us and that we can see how the overall plan that you have also uh, has great implications for our individual spiritual life and our individual spiritual growth. And Father, we pray that as we study this evening that you'll, we'll come to a greater understanding of this uh, important chapter, this important passage, and that you will help us to understand this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to... Uh, you can go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 2 unless you just want to go with me to 1 Corinthians 13 for a little uh, review after last week. Uh, last week, as we were, as I was continuing the study on tongues as a background for understanding part of what's been going on here on the day of Pentecost with the disciples speaking in tongues, which was a spiritual gift, and it was given to, I believe that the apostles had, each of the apostles had all the spiritual gifts. You can't prove that from Scripture. That's just my opinion. And I looked at various passages over the last few weeks on the gift of tongues and what the Scripture teaches about their purpose and that their purpose is taken from Paul's statement in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 12 to 14, that the purpose for tongues had to do with a sign that judgment was coming on Israel. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God warned that in the process of their disobedience, that in discipline they would begin to hear, they would be overrun by a, uh, an unknown country speaking an unknown language. And so it's that very act of speaking, hearing Gentile languages on 
uh, the land that God had given them that would be a sign of judgment. And then last time I went to 1 Corinthians 13 to show that that <coughs> tongues, as it's mentioned there in the context of the removal or the abolition of uh, the spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy, that these gifts would had a temporary nature uh, due to their purpose and due to their function. And so as I ended um, last time, I went to the last couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 13. By Sunday, I had generated another diagram that I use Sunday morning. So if you were here Sunday morning, this will help review that. If you weren't, then it's a good review anyway. The point that I was making and the real strength of the argument showing that these gifts were temporary has to do with this word now as it is used in this section of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. And in that, Paul said that knowledge and prophecy would be abolished and that they were partial. And that when the perfect came, that which was partial, that means knowledge and prophecy, that those gifts would be abolished when the perfect came. Then he gives a couple of illustrations in verses 11 and 12. And in verse 12, Paul wrote, for now, and he used this Greek word, arti, which means now in an immediate sense. Uh, he uses a different word for now in verse 13, the word nuni, which has a broader sense, especially when the two words occur in the same in the same context. So when he says for now in verse 12, it's an immediate now, and he's talking about now and then, now and then. Twice he has these, and I've highlighted those in red so that you can uh, you can see that. He says that there are certain things that characterize the immediate now, and then some things will change in the future, and that's indicated by the then clause. So now we see uh, in a mirror, uh, dimly, that is in an incomplete sense, but then face-to-face. So he's not talking about, as I pointed out, he's not talking about face-to-face with Jesus, but face-to-face with the canon of Scripture. And he says, uh, now I know in part our knowledge is partial. The first half of the verse has to do with prophecy. second half of the verse has to do with knowledge, the two uh, spiritual gifts that he's talking about in terms of their being abolished. He says, now I know in part uh, knowledge is partial, but it will be abolished. But then I will know fully. When we know fully, then the spiritual gift is no longer necessary and it will be abolished. And then in verse 13, he said, but now, that is now in a broader sense than the more immediate now, verse 12, now what continues, uh, what abides is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So I developed this particular uh, chart to illustrate this. You have this group of spiritual gifts and spiritual virtues, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, faith, hope, and love. And the, then something called the perfect comes, and that ends prophecy and knowledge. Tongues cease. And the implication is, because there's a shift in verb and voice there, that tongues will die out before the prophecy and the knowledge uh, are abolished with the coming of the perfect. So that prophecy, knowledge, tongues stop with the coming by the time the perfect comes, but what continues is faith, hope, and love. And then faith and hope must stop, and love will continue. And we see that faith and hope must stop because Second Corinthians five seven says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Romans eight twenty four and twenty five says 
uh, hope is for that which is not seen. So both are oriented to a time period when we don't see the eternal promise, that is being in heaven face to face with the Lord. The now refers to the period when prophecy and knowledge uh, and tongues are present, and then the faith, hope, and love refer to the period indicated by the then clause. And as I pointed out last time and on Sunday, the implication or sort of the knee-jerk response in interpreting the scriptures when it says, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face, to take face-to-face is being face-to-face with the Lord. But the mirror is the problem. And the mirror represents the Word of God. It's a dim or enigmatic mirror because it's not, it's partial. It's not complete. The perfect is that which completes something. That's the sense of the Word. Now, if we take it that, fa- that the perfect is a flawless environment when we're face-to-face with the Lord, either through death, rapture, second coming, something of that nature, then faith, hope, and love, all three would continue after the perfect comes. The problem with that is faith and hope don't continue into heaven. And the reason is this: these two verses, Romans, uh, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Romans 8, 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. When we're face to face with the Lord, hope and faith will end. We're no longer walking by faith. We're walking by sight. We're no longer motivated by hope because hope, that which we have hoped for or anticipated, our expectation of being with the Lord has arrived. So hope and faith end when we move from earth to heaven. And that leads to this interpretation that the now must refer to Paul's immediate time period, the pre-canon period, the apostolic age, and the then foresaw a time when the mirror would be complete, the word of God would be complete, and there would be uh, we would be face to face with the complete canon of Scripture so that the Word of God would uh, fully and accurately inform us as to who we are. So that makes sense that prophecy, knowledge, tongues, faith, hope, and love are in the pre-canon apostolic period. When the perfect comes, which is the complete revelation of God, then faith, hope, and love continue throughout the remainder of the church age. But when the church age ends then and we the church is faced face to face with the lord then love continues and faith and hope end back up only love abides once we are face to face with the lord so then another timeline would be this that is the green period refers to the pre-canon uh, apostolic period from approximately 8033 to 95 the purple Shade indicates the post-apostolic period from A.D. 95 till the rapture, and that's the period in which we live. So the spiritual gifts, the sign gifts, those temporary gifts only functioned in the pre-canon period because the Word of God was not complete yet. So that was our conclusion from last time. Now, when you have this event that occurs on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, the 12 disciples are the ones who are the only ones who speak miraculously in these languages. 
That's indicated by the pronoun that we studied in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that when, they, when it says, and they were gathered in one place, the immediate antecedent for the word they has to do with the twelve, uh, as mentioned, the apostles at the end of chapter 1. And so as leaders in the church, leaders in this new entity of the church, they are the ones who are recipients of this miraculous uh, <coughs> occurrence when the Holy Spirit initially descends, it descends upon them and then secondarily upon the remainder of the believers. Now, the response that that is generated once all of these many different uh, Jews are gathered in Jerusalem, and they come from all over, the, not, only, not only all over the Roman Empire, but also from east in the Parthian Empire, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, those from Mesopotamia, all are there in Jerusalem. And they're called devout men, which indicates that, that at least for the, for the most part, the vast majority, I would say, although we can't know how many, we can't put a percentage on it, uh, some think it's uh, maybe 50%, some say more, but who knows. But the Scripture presents them as devout, which would suggest that the majority of them or most of them are believers in an Old Testament sense. Now, this is why an Old Testament theology is so crucial to understanding and properly interpreting uh, Acts chapter 2 because what is happening here is something that was promised in the Old Testament and it is related to this offer of the kingdom which John the Baptist offered, then Jesus offered, but the leadership rejected. We went through that with Matthew chapter 12 and the rejection of the, and the accusation that Jesus performs his, his miracles and the power of, of Beelzebub and that what this was a claim by the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is the emissary of the devil. And this is the official rejection by the nation of Jesus' messiahship. That doesn't mean that everybody in the nation's rejected it, but the leadership has. It would be as if uh, Jesus had come to offer the kingdom to the Congress of the United States, and the Congress of the United States voted against it, and that would then become the law of the land. But that doesn't mean that that is the view of everybody in the country, but that is the official position of the nation, and that is what is at stake in terms of the... the uh, uh, of the eschatology here. And so uh, they come together and uh, they have met on the outside of the Temple Mount. And I've shown you this diagram here of the, of the old city of Jerusalem as it would have existed during the first century. This area here is the Temple Mount. Somewhere in this area, we'll zoom in a little bit here, Somewhere in this area would have been the location of the upper room. That morning as they heard the sound of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and then they left to begin the observances of that feast day on the day of Pentecost. Uh, it could be that initially this uh, confrontation begins out just outside the temple on the southern uh, temple steps. It could also be that this takes place, especially when Peter starts his message, that it could take place inside in this area here, which is the courtyard of the Gentiles. The scripture doesn't make it clear, but it could be at either either one of those locations. Now, what's interesting is there's a series of, uh, of really good uh, diagrams and illustrations of the temple 
that have come out in, within the uh, Logos uh, computer program that give us an, a little understanding of the size and the dimension of the temple. And I just thought I would include some of these because we've studied so much about the tabernacle and the first temple under Solomon, the second temple, the Zerubbabel temple, and then the Herodian temple, that I would include some of these just so you could see the uh, comparison and contrast. So the chart, the picture that's up on the screen is of Herod's temple, which is the, called the second temple. Actually, it's phase two of the second temple. The second temple is originally built when the exiles came back under, uh, under Zerubbabel at the approximately 536, 537 uh, B.C., they rebuilt the temple. It's uh, established it's, uh, uh, in 516 was when they completed it. And from 516 up until approximately uh, 25 or so B.C., uh, you had a smaller temple, but then you had the great architect Herod the Great who came in and wanted to do something magnificent, and so he began to rebuild the, the temple. It was still under construction, and they didn't f- complete the second temple until 44 or 45 um, A.D. So this is the Herodian temple, and you can see a comparison here. The small square on the left is the size of Solomon's temple, and then the larger on the right is the size of Herod's temple. Now, that's not that that temple on the right, remember, only includes the temp, the immediate inner temple itself, the holy place, and the um, uh, outer courtyard of the women's courtyard. It doesn't include the entire temple's precinct. Remember, the Gentile, the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is outside. It only in the next diagram, it only includes that. Uh, the inner section there, uh, which is the Holy of Holies and then the, uh, the women's courtyard. So you can see how much larger Herod's temple was than Solomon's temple. This will give you another comparison. That small square at the top represents the size of the uh, tabernacle, the old, whole court inside the fence of the tabernacle. Then the... Uh, Lighter brown square represents the size of Solomon's temple. Then the, we have the uh, the green square there represents the size of a standard American uh, football field, 100 yards by 50 yards. And so that gives you a little bit of a comparison. And then the blue square represents the size of Herod's temple. And then the large brown square at the bottom represents the size of the future uh, temple of Ezekiel. So that gives you a good comparison and contrast there. Now, I'm going to leave that comparison on the left side of the next slide. So that's that's still there, but on the right, you have another uh, chart comparing this different size of the temples. The green square down here at the bottom represents the size of a standard American football field. So that gives you a little bit of a visual on the size of these these temples, and this blue square here is the size of the of Herod's temple, but that's only the holy place and the women's courtyard. That doesn't include the larger size, uh, which includes the gen- the court of the Gentiles, which is perhaps where um, Peter uh, gave this sermon. It would be either inside the court of the Gentiles, which includes this area here as well as this area over here on the right. And then the southern steps 
or this area on the left. A couple of other artists' uh, diagrams and portraits of what this must have looked like would be this one where we have the uh, uh, gates, the southern gates, the southern steps going in, and, the, um, and then we also have the present state. So see what that looks like. And then here we have the uh, present situation with the wall that was... Some of these, the lower foundations of this wall are from the uh, Second Temple period. But the upper level of the wall uh, was built uh, during the time by Suleiman the Magnificent. So this covers the area where those uh, entry gates were. You can see the, them walled up if you're up a little closer. In this area right here, you have the, uh, the gates that are, you have the bricks walled up. You have three here, and then you can see part of one right over here in this corner. And then the other one would have been behind that later uh, later edifice. So this shows the remains of the steps going up into the temple. The other thing you see here, uh, along we're looking now along the front of that wall. This is the wall to the left, looking due east to the Mount of Olives, and all of this white up here is a Jewish uh, Jewish graveyard, and they're all buried with their feet pointed towards the temple, so that when they are resurrected, they can just stand right up and walk straight to the temple where the Messiah will be. And in the foreground, you have all these uh, uh, various mikvah. Mikvahot is the plural. It is the ceremonial cleansing area where you would go and you would walk down one side of the steps, the unclean side, down into the water for a, a bath, and then you would come up the other side. You would be ritually cleansed to go into the uh, temple that was located here on the south wall, the southern entry, going into the uh, going into the temple. So that gives you a good visual, so that when we talk about what's happened here, you can sort of visualize in your mind the grandeur of this location where this is taking place. That this was a huge, enormous, beautiful uh, temple area surrounding them and where all of this takes place. Now, this first verse that I mentioned states that, so they, that is, so the those who were gathered witnessing all of this, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Now, that's important because that question is the question that Peter answers, and he is going to interpret for them the events that have just transpired. Why did they hear this loud sound like a, like a uh, tornado coming through Jer Jerusalem? Why did they uh, hear these disciples from Galilee speaking in these uh, unlearned and unacquired languages, this miraculous ability to speak in the languages of all of these people who have come uh, from all of these foreign areas to worship that day in Jerusalem? And the first word, amazed, is an interesting word. It's the verb existami, which is a cognate for, from, from the noun ecstasis. Ecstasis is where we get our word ecstasy. But this is one of those illustrations where just, just cognates and meaning don't give you the, 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 the real meaning of the word. Uh, you can just see some elementary Greek student coming along and say, oh, this was an ecstatic experience. But that's not rarely how the word uh, the word was used, certainly not how the verb was used. In the Old Testament, the Greek word 
is never used for ecstasy, neither the verb nor the noun. In fact, the word is used primarily to express terror, fear, or madness. Terror, fear, or madness. And it is never used in the sense of some sort of mystical ecstatics. Uh, In fact, the most common use is simply to express the fact that somebody is frightened. In the New Testament, the verb most often describes the reaction of people to a miracle, to some marvelous work of God, that they are amazed, they're just astounded, they're just they're almost speechless at what has happened because they understand that what, is, what has occurred is beyond the ordinary. It is a, a miracle. So it, is, it has the idea of being amazed, uh, confused, astonished at a set of circumstances. The second word that's used there is the word perplexed. And the per- perplexed comes from another Greek word, diapareo, which means to be in doubt, to actually to be at loss for an explanation. They just can't explain it. They see something and it's just so out of the ordinary that they can't explain it. They can't understand it. And so what, um, uh, what will happen is in the next verse, verse 13, some will start mocking and say, well, they're full of new wine. And the word that's translated new wine there is the word glucose, which refers to sweet wine. We think of glucose in terms of something that is just sweet. Sometimes you have glucose with the Greek word oinos, and sometimes it just stands alone. But it refers to a a rather weak wine. We think of the context here makes it sound like it's talking about something strong, but actually glucose was wine that had not yet fully fermented. Remember, this is the uh, first fruits of the summer harvest, and so the Greek, uh, I mean, the, the, the vine harvest has not come, been, been fully uh, fermented yet from the spring. And so th- there's a bit of sarcasm that's going on here. Remember, they're mocking them, and they're saying, ah, oh, they're just on a cheap drunk because glucose was, a, it was relatively inexpensive. It wasn't fully uh, fermented wine yet. So they just said, oh, these, these Christians, they're just on a cheap drunk. And Peter is going to respond to them, and he's going to say that, no, never, this isn't what, um, what you think. And in verse 14, he says, we, we read the, the answer that he gives. He stands up with the 11, so 11 plus Peter is 12, so Matthias is definitely part of the group. And Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now that phrase indicates two groups of people, the Judeans who were the natives who lived there in uh, Judea, and the phrase those who dwell in Jerusalem isn't speaking of uh, those who were who lived permanently in Jerusalem, but was it the same phrase, the same uh, Greek word that was used back in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, which referred to all the travelers who had come and were temporarily staying in Jerusalem. In Acts 2.5, it, uh, it reads, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Same verbiage. So uh, when it, verse 14, Luke describes two groups, those who were natives who lived in Judea and those who were temporarily living in Jerusalem because they had come for the feast day, most of whom are devout men, as stated back in verse 5. 
And Peter says to them two things. He says, let first, let this be known unto you. Now, I find that to be, it's a difficult phrase to translate, but I find that to be a, a somewhat uh, questionable translation because when it says, let this be known to you, that implies a passive voice. You're, you're passive to the action of the verb. But that's not what we have in the, in the original. We actually have a present active imperative which indicates that the subject, which is you, you are to act upon that, uh, the, the verb, you, you perform the action of the verb. The subject performs the action of the verbs. So what Peter is saying is you now know this, or he is commanding them to know this, and this is backed up by the second uh, word that he uses, which is the word... Uh, uh, in otizomai, which is an aorist middle imperative, that's because it's a deponent verb, so it also has an active sense, and it means to pay close attention to something. That's what heed means. So what Peter says is, now you need to know this, pay attention to what I'm going to say. He is going to explain what just happened. He's going to answer their question that came up uh, a couple of verses earlier, what does this mean? So Peter's answer is now to explain what just happened. Now, this is really important to understand this because the failure to understand this and to misinterpret this has led to great confusion uh, in understanding eschatology. And it directly relates to our understanding of the kingdom. And now this is something that uh, I talked a lot about uh, when we first began this study in the first part of Acts, talking about what it, what is meant by this term, the kingdom, and has the kingdom come? And in, has the kingdom come in a spiritual form? It was had the kingdom come in a um, has the kingdom come in a real, actual sense? Um, it also relates to how we interpret prophecy. Do we interpret prophecy in a literal sense, or is this support for an allegorical interpretation of prophecy? Now, some of that may have gone right over your head, so let me uh, explain this. What we're going to see is Peter is going to quote from a passage in Joel, and he's going to say, this is what uh, the prophet Joel said. Now, there are those who come along and say, this is an exact fulfillment. That's what Peter means when he says, this is what Joel said. And they'll say, this is exact fulfillment of what Joel prophesied. But you're right. You're right. Not everything that Joel said took place. And not everything that that happened on the day of Pentecost uh, reflects what Joel said. But Peter says they're the identical same thing, and it's a one-to-one correspondence, and this is direct fulfillment. So that means that Peter, now pay attention, Peter is interpreting Joel allegorically. And we don't need to interpret these passages, these prophecies from a literal sense. And so they end up saying that this, is, this was indeed the fulfillment of uh, Joel 2. And so Joel 2 indicates the arrival of the kingdom because that's what Joel 2 is talking about is what happens after the day of the Lord when the kingdom is established. And since it's not a kingdom that's on the earth, it must be a spiritual kingdom. And so that kingdom is not physical. And we call people who believe that amillennialists. The a prefix means is a negation. It means they don't believe in a literal, physical, earthly, 1,000-year rule of Christ on the earth. 
And that's how they get one of the ways, one of the central ways in which they get to this is because of the way they try to understand what Peter meant by this is what the prophet Joel said. And so when they interpret this in a strict fulfillment sense, then they end up using that to support allegorical because it isn't a strict literal fulfillment. But if it is, then they would be justified in saying that this is, this is allegorical. In the same way, you had the development of a, of a new form of dispensationalism that really isn't dispensationalism that came out of Dallas Seminary in the mid-1980s. And um, it was, uh, at Dallas Seminary, it was promoted by two men, Craig Blazing and Daryl Bach, and then one man out of uh, Talbot Seminary by the name of, of uh, Robert Sosey. And it became known as progressive dispensationalism. And just this last week, I was with somebody who said, what is progressive dispensationalism? That's a good question. The reason they called it progressive is because their idea was that uh, when Jesus offered the kingdom and it was rejected, then the kingdom is actually inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. But it's not fully inaugurated. Okay, now this is really important. It comes in, but it's not fully here. So the term that was used was a view called the already not yet view. It's already here, but not yet. And it, it, it's, it came from a theologian at, who taught at Fuller in the, in the 50s and early 60s by the name of George Eldon Ladd. And George Eldon Ladd was, was a post-tribulationist and he also uh, does not believe a uh, number of things that, that we, would, we, we would believe. Once you make this shift, because of the way you interpret what Peter says, this is what Joel said, it opens the door to a number of other things. For example, the, what became known as the Vineyard Movement of John Wimber and, um, and some others, uh, Peter Wagner for one, who was a professor at Fuller again, heavily influenced by um, uh, heavily influenced by George Ladd, uh, they came up with this view, and that means that if we're in the kingdom in some sense, and this prophecy and not this this what 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 Joel says here that your young men will dream dreams and your uh, your your young women will prophesy, uh, old men will dream dreams and whatever, that this is. Uh, this is normative for today because we're in the kingdom, and that's what will happen when the kingdom comes. Now, why is this a particular problem for us at West Houston Bible Church and why some of you need to be aware of this? Because Ladd's view of, of uh, this kingdom, this, this already not yet view, that's a, what's called a dialectic, uh, a dialectical view of, of something, and that dialectics comes out of Hegelian thought. And in Hegelian thought, you have your, your initial statement, your thesis, and then there's an opposite statement of it, your antithesis, and then you have this, this creation of a synthesis or a, a, a blending of the two. And so history moves itself forward with antithesis and then, uh, uh, I mean, thesis and antithesis and then synthesis, and then from the synthesis you have another um, opposite form, the antithesis, and then that forms another synthesis. This enters into, it's adopted into part of uh, Marxist thinking, and it's, it's a, uh, so it's a um, dialectic approach 
to uh, to things. It was great this last week. I think uh, John Eidsmo used the um, used the illustration that in classical math, eight minus four equals four. In Hegelian math, eight minus four leads to the answer of four, but then you have an antithesis, which is six. But the synthesis is five. So the Hegelian answer is that eight minus four becomes five. For the new age or the existentialist, the concern isn't so much that eight, what eight minus four is. It's how eight feels when four is subtracted from it. So maybe that'll give you a little bit of an idea how uh, these things fit together and have uh, come down ideologically through history. So this idea of an already not yet view of the kingdom is trying to create a new synthesis. It's not that you either have the kingdom or you don't have the kingdom. It's that you now you have one that's here and it's not here. It's already but not yet. And so you see how these external ideas from, from philosophy still affect uh, things and change our interpretation. And so uh, that is also part of uh, not only progressive dispensationalism, but it's part of uh, the Vineyard Movement and various other uh, X-X and spasms that have developed in the last 30 or 40 years since LAD have adopted this already not yet view of the kingdom. And it is accepted almost uh, uh, without challenge now. And it becomes embedded in the philosophy of a man and the theology of a man named uh, N.T. Wright, who's a former bishop in the Anglican Church and now has an academic position teaching theology at a university up in Scotland. I can't remember whether it's Aberdeen or um, uh, Aberdeen or Edinburgh, but one of those. And his writings have had a very negative influence on some pastors that uh, used to be fairly straight, doctrinal pastors ordained out of Barak Church who have now completely rejected uh, dispensationalism. And N.T. Wright believes that there's only one people of God, that there's, not a, um, that there's not a distinction between Israel and the church. He also teaches that, um, uh, that imputation of Christ's righteousness is a legal fiction and that uh, once you're saved, the works of righteousness that you perform are non-meritorious. And so that becomes the basis for your justification. Now, this is important because one of these pastors that was ordained out of Baraka uh, teaches almost all of this from his pulpit now. And some of the men who came out of his church are beginning to teach some of this under the guise of already not yet view of the kingdom. So there are some of you who are here who are just going like, what's all this about? I don't care. It's flying over my head. But there are people in this congregation who have friends and family who are in these congregations, and they need to be armed with the truth of God's word so they can understand what it is that is being communicated by uh, some of their friends and loved ones who are sitting under the uh, really screwed up teaching now in from coming out of these pulpits because of the influence of people who have bought into all, the already not yet view. It's also a view that is, or, or, or how this uh, uh, this is that is taken is also in uh, very much part of uh, preterism. Where preterism teaches that uh, all of these events, the signs of the times, were really signs of the judgment on Israel in A.D. 70, 
And so that's what, why you, if you interpret it, and if Peter is meaning a one-to-one correspondence here of direct, complete fulfillment of Joel 2, then, um, you know, this is part of their argument, we're already in the kingdom in, um, uh, in preterism. So we need to be reminded of the fact that in Scripture, prophecy, this fulfillment language, has four different uses in, in Scripture. We've gone through this quite a bit. We did it in Acts 1, but just to review, I'm going to hit it real fast because uh, most of you were here for that. In Matthew 2, 5, and 6, you have a literal prophecy and a literal fulfillment. The situation is the Magi have come to Herod, and they're saying, we've seen the uh, star of the king of the Jews in the east, and we followed it. Where is he born? And so Herod called in the prophets and the scribes, and, and they came in. They said, oh, he's, according to Ma- Micah 5, 2, he's born in Bethlehem of Judea. And Micah 5, 2 says it literally, that it's a literal prophecy that the Messiah will be born uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Bethlehem, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, that is the king of the Jews whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Messianic prophecy. So it's a literal prophecy in Micah, and it is interpreted literally in the fulfillment. But in the same chapter in Matthew, you have another statement using similar language uh, there were, and, and um, G- about Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, are down in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. See the same language, fulfillment language, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken of the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt I sh- called my son. Now that is a statement that comes out of Hosea 11.1. 1. But Hosea is not giving a future prophecy in that passage. In Hosea 11.1, 1, he's referring to the historical event of Moses bringing Israel, called the firstborn of God, out of Egypt. And so Hosea, referring to a historical event, says that when Israel was a child, I loved him, God is the one speaking here, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's not a prophecy. That is a description of a literal historical event. And it is, uh, but it represents, it is a type or a pattern that is taken by the writer of uh, Matthew, by Matthew under the, Holy, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be a pattern that is fulfilled in, in the fact that Jesus as the Messiah comes out of Egypt when he returns to the land and returns to Nazareth. So it's a literal historical event and it is only a typological fulfillment, just a fulfillment of a pattern. Uh, then we have a literal historical event again that is just applied to the situation with the Lord. Again, the passage is in Matthew 2. So we see that all of these examples come right out of the same chapter. Matthew, as the writer, uses this fulfillment verbiage four different ways in Matthew 2. In Matthew 2, 17 and 18, he says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are are no more. Now, Ramah is a small village that is located north of Jerusalem. The quotation here comes from Jeremiah 31, and Jeremiah 31 is describing the weeping of the mothers in Israel 
as their sons and daughters are being taken as captives away from Israel and Judah, or actually away from Judah, to, uh, to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in the sec- after the second invasion. After the first invasion, there was a deportation. After the second eva- invasion, there was a deportation. And so uh, J- Jeremiah wrote, thus says, the Lord of voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. Now, Rachel is the w- was the wife of Jacob, and she is pictured here as the ultimate, as the uh, prototype of all Jewish mothers. So it is the mothers of, 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 of the Jews that are weeping for the children. They're not dead, but they're going away into captivity. So the only point of comparison here is that the mothers aren't going to see their children again, and as a result, they weep. The locations uh, in Matthew 2, the location has to do with Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. The mothers are weeping because their their infants under the age of two, their male sons, their male infants, have been killed by Herod. And so it's a different location. It's a different event. But nevertheless, the mothers of Israel are weeping in both places. So Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is taking this, this passage, this historical event of Jeremiah 31, and he applies it to the event that occurs in, um, uh, at the time of, of the birth of Christ with the slaughter of the, of the uh, infants. And then the final usage in Matthew 2 is a, called a summary. And in Matthew 2.23, Matthew said, And he came and dwelt, that is Jesus, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called Nazarene. Well, the problem with this is that he's never called it, that, that there's no passage, there's no prophecy that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. What we do have is a number of passages that indicate, for example, Isaiah 53.1, that talks about the fact that he will not be accepted. He's not, um, he, he's rejected. He's viewed as not being attractive. He's viewed as not speaking well. And so he comes from Galilee, uh, so he and Nazareth, so he's not viewed as being very smart. Uh, every every place, every town, every country has some place that they point to, and the people who come from that location are, you know, on on the low side of the uh, IQ chart. Uh, Houston has Pasadena, Texas has Arkansas, the New England has Maine, uh, the. Uh, the old Midwest has West Virginia. I mean, everybody has some place that they point to and say, well, the people who come from there just, uh, if you go there, your IQ drops 50 points. And so that's what is meant in this particular uh, passage. It's sort of a summary of what is said about the Messiah, that he is not, uh, he's not really accepted uh, by the people as being um, as being the Messiah. He's seen as being somewhat lacking. So uh, let me see. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead here. Uh, so that's the idea. Now, which of these it applies to a Peter's use of Joel? He's re- it's the third one. It's application because nothing that Joel says happens in Acts 2 and nothing that happens in Acts 2 is prophesied in, in Joel 2. So let me give you a little comparison here. 
You can open your Bibles, look in your Bibles to uh, um, to Acts chapter 2, and we'll just uh, uh, read along with this. Now, as Peter quotes here, he said, quotes quoting from uh, Joel 2, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, when we look at this comparison and contrast, Joel 2 talks about the fact that your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men see visions, old men dream dreams, uh, slaves, male and female, um, will uh, dream dreams, and, uh, the, um, uh, uh, and the spirit of prophecy will be poured out upon them. Uh, there will be wonders in the sky, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, moon into blood, but there's no mention of tongues. In Acts 2, there's no mention of prophecy, no daughters speak, no visions, no dreams. Only the twelve speak. They're all men, no women. There's no wonders in sky or earth. The sun doesn't turn to darkness. The moon doesn't turn to blood. And the only thing mentioned is they speak in tongues. So you see, Joel 2 cannot be literally fulfilled by by Acts 2. There's only one point of comparison. So what Peter is doing is the same thing Matthew did in that third use. He's saying this is like what Joel said. It's not identical. It is not a direct fulfillment like Matthew 5, uh, like Micah 5.2 in Matthew 2, but it is showing something similar, a similar pattern. And what we've seen before is you say, well, look, at he quotes five verses. Sure, well, the writer of Hebrews quoted four, four verses from Jeremiah 31, but he quotes four verses only to make a point of one phrase, that it's called a new covenant, which implies that the old covenant is replaced by a new covenant. The old covenant, therefore, was temporary. He quotes all those other verses, but he never says anything about them. And so this was a standard approach at that time, would be that if you want to make a point, you would quote the passage so you would get the context, and then you would just draw out the one point that you were uh, you were making. Now, if we look at the context of Joel 2, then we will see something that is uh, important to understand. We've got just enough time to go over Joel 2. Joel 2, 1 through 11, talks about the day of the Lord. And then there's a shift that occurs in verse 2, and the focus is on the response to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a term that refers to a time of judgment that will come upon Israel when God will bring this horrendous judgment upon the people. Joel 2, 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Uh, people, 
uh, come. They're great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Never been. Notice that. It's, it's unique now. It's, it's it, this event, like Jesus said, of the tribulation, a war like there has never been before. Uh, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many such generations. So obviously this is talking about the unique judgment in history, which can only be uh, the tribulation. And then when we come to the uh, end, uh, verse 11 says, the, vo- the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible, who can endure it? And it ends with a question. Well, we're told who can endure it in the next section. It's those who turn to God. Verse 12, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. And that's the Hebrew word shuv, which, has, which is sometimes translated repent. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart now and not your garments. Return. There's that word shuv again. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Now, this word shuv or return or repent has great significance in Old Testament theology. For in uh, Jer- I mean, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, there's the warning of future judgments upon uh, the Jews and the land because of their disobedience and idolatry and that God will remove them and scatter them to all the nations uh, throughout the world. But then comes the promise that when they return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, your children, all your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, then verse 3 goes on to say, then I will restore you from all the lands where I have scattered you. But this word return to the Lord is the word shuv. So what uh, Joel 2, 12, and 13 is referring to is when this shuv event takes place is at the end of the day of the Lord, and then the day of the Lord will come, and the Lord will destroy the enemies uh, of Israel. And following the day of the Lord, the land will be refreshed. And Joel uh, 2.18 says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people, The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. The land is refreshed. You will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you approach among the nations. Just a little question. Is Israel or are the Jews a reproach among the nations today? Just read the news. Everybody hates them. The U.N. hates them. All the other countries, the U.S. is probably the only country that really stands consistently behind uh, Israel. So they are still a reproach among the nations. So this hasn't been fulfilled yet. Uh, Verse 20, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea. I think that's uh, the defeat of of, uh, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then we go on, just skip down a couple of verses, and we come down to verse 28. And in verse 28, we read, and it shall come to pass afterward. After what? After the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the tribulation, Jeremiah 30, verse 8. That is the time of Jacob's trouble. What happens after that is Joel 28. It will come to pass after the day of the Lord that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants, my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. That's after the tribulation period. 
I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, and then chapter 3 talks about going into the millennial kingdom, the judgments that occur at the end of the day of the Lord going into the millennial kingdom. Now, the other thing that we see uh, happen here is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and that connects to passages such as Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, uh, which is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put, on, put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is millennial. But see, if you take Acts 2, Peter saying this is that as literal fulfillment of a literal prophecy, then what you have to say is the new covenant was established and inaugurated on the day of Pentecost and that all of these things that are true of Joel 2, 28 to 32 happened then and are to be normative in the church today and that uh, today you have the, the, the new heart and the new spirit um, and God causes us to walk in my statutes. Well, that certainly fits the Calvinistic framework that amillennialism and preterism all come out of, that there's an inevitability here. But this is talking about the millennial kingdom in Israel. It's not talking about what's happening now. And so what we must understand when, when Peter quotes this is he's not saying this is a literal fulfillment of that prophecy because we haven't had the day of the Lord. Uh, we haven't had all of these things take place. He's just saying this action by the Holy Spirit is like that that's described in Joel 2. And next time we'll come back and we'll look at how this fits into his whole sermon because what we need to do is take a look at the whole of Joel 2 as, as an overview, a flyover to understand the structure of his argument and where he's headed because he's using this to come to the conclusion, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. However we understand his quote from Joel 2, he's quoting it to start his logical drive to this conclusion. So we have to understand how this all fits together, and we'll see that when we come back next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to see how it fits together perfectly and that this, these prophecies uh, are not always taken as literal prophecy, literal fulfillment, but that what Peter is saying is that there's actually uh, indicating a postponement, but something happened on the day of Pentecost that is like the coming of the Spirit that, would, that will come when the kingdom begins, but that this coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is actually inaugurating a distinct dispensation that was unknown in the Old Testament, the dispensation of the church age. Father, help us to understand the significance of this and the great power that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.